0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 11th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. When the feds designate a company systemically important that comes with additional regulation and oversight, in the case of insurer MetLife, that designation didn't stick. The judge in the case says the government used a flawed process in claiming MetLife's failure could destabilize the U.S. economy. Thea Brook, knight Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, offers her thoughts. What does it mean when the federal government designates a company systemically important?
1: Well, the first thing that it means is that there's a signal to the market that the government is behind this company now. They will argue that's not the case, that the entire idea behind what's called SIFI, designation systemically important financial institution, um, is that we're ending too big to fail by monitoring these companies, but it's very hard for the government to designate a company as systemically important, meaning that it could have wide-ranging effects on the uh, the American economy to the point of destabilizing it, and then not step in to backstop that company if there's a problem down the road. So. Um, That, to my mind, is one of the important parts of the designation. Now, in practical terms, it means that the Financial Stability Oversight Council, uh, which people call FSOC, um, has the authority to monitor the company, to oversee it. It also sets the company up. For additional prudential regulation by the Federal Reserve, so uh, rules about the, what kind of capital they have to hold, and things that a lot of these companies have said are, are can be quite onerous and will really change how they do business.
0: Okay, so MetLife sued the government and said that the the FSOX designation of that company as systemically important was invalid and wrongheaded, and they. They won, essentially, in the first round here.
1: They did. They did. And this is a big deal. Um, so, you know, it, it is the first round. It's not over yet. The government has filed their notice of intent to appeal. Um, so this is going to go up to the appellate court. But um, there's been a lot of criticism of the FSOC for how it conducts this. their decision-making process for determining whether a company is going to be a SIFI. And people have called it a black box um, and said that it's fairly secretive. So, you know, other companies have not fought back. For example, uh, AIG was designated as a SIFI, and it has moved to break up and spin off different business uh, units. But MetLife uh, fought back, and the judge really kind of issued a ringer of uh, an opinion.
0: Now, part of the opinion here was about the process or method that the government used in order to render their designation and not as much focused on the quality, the merits of that designation itself. Is that right?
1: Right. And that's a very important distinction. So the judge uh, did not make any decision about whether you know, the Dodd-Frank structure is a good idea or SIFIs or any of that, which is entirely appropriate. This was not a question before the court. It's not for the judiciary to decide. But what she found was that, um, you know, a couple of years ago, FSOC actually came out with some uh, guidance saying, well, this is what our internal process is. And it described a two-phase process that they use internally to decide whether a company should be designated as a SIFI. And then she said, well, you know, the way, you FSOC described to me, the court, how you do this process, it doesn't square with what your guidance says. So when you tell the public that you're using a certain process, you then have to actually follow your own process, which seems like a pretty basic principle, but uh, apparently it was a surprise to FSOC.
0: U.S. District Judge Rosemary Collier... Uh, issued the opinion, Uh, she said, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, she said the council made promises that regulators later abandoned without explanation, violating administrative law and rendering the decision arbitrary and capricious. So they could render a non-arbitrary, non-capricious designation, some, they, sometime down the road.
1: They could, and actually that that bar, arbitrary and capricious, is a fairly low bar. Um, it's very hard to overcome that. Usually courts will decide that a regulator acted uh, reasonably within the bounds of the law, and so that made this finding even more uh, surprising in some ways, um, because she also found not only that they would have to go back and redo two steps of the process. They would have to follow their guidance that they issued. But she also said that they need to take into account the cost of their regulation. Um, They had argued they didn't need to do any sort of analysis of the cost or the benefit of the regulation because the law didn't expressly say that they had to. Um, And this is a little bit surprising because there are parts of Dodd-Frank that require a cost-benefit analysis. And this section, uh, FSOC is correct, does not say, you need a cost-benefit analysis. And so it's, most lawyers would say, well, look, if the statute says in one place you have to do something, but in another place it doesn't say you have to do it, you can assume you don't have to do it. But Judge Collier, um, relying on a recent Supreme Court decision, said, no, cost is always a factor when you're looking at regulation.
0: And this is uh, a decision, Michigan v. EPA, as you mentioned before we started recording?
1: Yeah. So in that case, um, you had in some ways a similar situation. The EPA had issued some regulations and they said we don't have to consider the cost. And the court looked and said, you know, the EPA had said that their cost would be of imposing this regulation would be about $9.6 billion, but the anticipated Benefit would only be four to six million dollars, and then looking at that, the court said you, that this is clearly part of your decision-making process. It's clearly relevant. You can't just issue regulations where you are getting a few dollars of benefit for hundreds and thousands of dollars of cost.
0: Okay, so Treasury Secretary Jack Lew has sort of uh, complained about uh, this decision, and the government last week appealed. And he said in a statement, again, according to The Wall Street Journal, the financial crisis showed direct and predictable counterparty losses are not often the means by which the failure of a financial company could destabilize markets and threaten the U.S. economy. So, the type of contagion that he's talking about is of, of a different sort, one that we sort of became more familiar with during the financial crisis. It's not the people you're actually doing business with who could stand to lose. It is uh, the general system that is sort of an animal spirits argument almost about how contagion uh, can take root, which seems to be a fairly arbitrary way to come up with uh, a regulatory scheme. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And I would say that this makes it a superhuman task in order to determine which companies really, really would be SIFIs, where. It- in some ways, you can look at some companies and say, well, they're just so big that if they really had a problem, that probably would uh, impact a lot of people and impact people's psyches. So, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase or Citibank are one of these very big ones. Maybe you could say them, but then you have to draw the line somewhere. And in some ways, it's just not possible for mortals to understand how other human beings are going to behave. And... So you wind up with this very sort of squishy line drawing. of This company is a SIFI, and this is not. And I think this contributes to this uh, this criticism of a black box decision making process.
0: With respect to the specific designation, how does that change the market's treatment of that institution? You know, some companies have you know Fannie and Freddie long had an implicit government uh, premium built into their. Their debt and their share prices—is that something that is expected to typically happen with a company that's designated systemically important, or do they do work? Are they worse off?
1: You know, it, it, I think that there's kind of a mix. So, MetLife stock went up on news of this win, which suggests that the market sees the SIFI designation as a problem. So, on the one hand, I think that there is that implicit backstop, and. I would argue that because of this sort of squishy nature of what's a SIFI and what's not, there may be companies that haven't actually been des- designated SIFI that still are getting that sort of plus up because there's an idea that maybe they could be. There's The government is involving itself in supporting companies that are seen as being important to the uh, the US economy.
0: But in terms of like considering both the costs of compliance and the benefits of Uh, this government backstop. It's not clear which one dominates.
1: Right. And so what you see is because these regulations are so onerous, you do see some of the stock being depressed because of the cost of complying with A lot of the rules haven't been written yet, but that might be also playing into some of the, the depression of the stock price, is we don't know what, what's coming. Um, and Dodd-Frank really leaves a lot of leeway for different government regulators to get in there and and put different restrictions on players in the market.
0: Thea Brook Knight is Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.